Before we get started, a quick note. This podcast features explicit language and descriptions of sexual situations. Listener discretion is advised. And for those of you who are just joining us, this is a continuing story, so please go back and listen to the previous episodes first. You know, I'm going to be extremely pissed off if we get to these coordinates and Bobby said they're laughing his ass off. It's a possibility. That's Ruben and I, as the two of us, along with co-producer Todd Luoto, drove into the Tillamook State Forest, about 50 miles west of Portland. Just hours ago, Ruben extracted a code from what appeared to have been Mark Sims' sobriety journal, a journal that Bobby had conveniently discovered. That code revealed coordinates that led back to the origin of Bobby's story, a point deep in the Tillamook State Forest, where he and Mark were alleged to have escaped abduction as teenagers. Would these coordinates lead us to a definitive answer or another round of games? It was hard to know what to expect when Bobby was involved. You think he's one of the guys, one of those guys that's like so completely believes his own bullshit that it's not bullshit anymore? Who is Bobby without his story? And that's been the essential question. Why would he go to such lengths to perpetuate his story? If it was for profit, he couldn't have made much more than a few hundred dollars. If it was for acceptance, it almost guaranteed the opposite effect. Somewhere along Bobby's quest to prove the existence of this game, he actually started becoming his narrative. It wasn't a part of him. It was the only him. It just had a signal come through for a second. You did? I lost it again. Oh, can we check? Can we check and see if we've updated? Oh, I'm getting... I am getting... Interference from your phone. It's coming through, yeah. Okay, where are we on the map? We're too far away. There was some concern that we'd get out to the forest and not really be able to determine where we were going. Cell phone reception was almost non-existent. And while we had specific coordinates to guide us, exactly how we were going to reach them or what we'd have to trek through to get there was anyone's guess. Whatever's at the end of this. Hold up. I got a signal. Well, I just felt a vibrate in my pocket. Text went through. Let's see the map. How far from the coordinates? Uh, I can't entirely tell, but it looks like we're still... Wait, wait, shh. Do you hear that? It's a creek. What? It's a creek. It's water. From Bobby's story. Which way it splits? I think we should go down here. Towards the water. You mentioned the creek. Crossing a creek. And for a while I thought I was going in circles and finally I came up to a small stream. And that's where I finally stopped and was still. There was a strange rock that looked like it had a face on it. So I just crossed over the thing and just kept running barefoot. And then I finally made it to a hiking trail. And then we want to look for the, there were rocks that had like a face in them. I guess that could be a person. Ruben is referring to a rock formation a short distance from the creek. Eyes? Oh no, you can see faces in anything. And therein lied the problem. Out here in Tillamook, it was too easy to doubt ourselves, to see what we wanted to see, even if it wasn't really there. And there was another issue. I'm worried about how we're going to find our way back because, you know, we've been kind of like... Oh, okay. Careful. Are you okay, dude? 
That's the sound of Reuben sliding down an embankment near what he thought might have once been the mouth of a tunnel. I mean, this could have been a cave. Like a mine collapse. It seemed increasingly unlikely that there was anything to discover. We look. But just as we lost hope, cell phone. The phone was at the base of the embankment, left behind on a rock. It's old. It's not no. too old. No. Android. The phone still had a charge, but was password protected. Either a hiker had lost Here it while come. venturing off trail, or someone had placed it there intentionally. I mean, could that phone be Bobby's? He Maybe had he the, got here before us. He had all the same information that was in the notebook. I'm referring to Mark's sobriety journal, which Bobby had photographed, presumably on that phone, the day he had discovered it at the house in Gresham. The code, the coordinates. If he didn't mastermind it, he would have certainly had the same chance of solving it. And as we ventured out of the forest and regained cell service, we dialed Bobby's number and got our confirmation. It was his phone. Do we have a birthday for him? Um, Back at Ruben's house, we were confronted with the task of unlocking the phone, which had a four-digit password. Hoax. H-O-A-S, what is this? Please say no. Please say it's not hoax. Four, two, six, nine. Okay. Nope, not that. What about his handle on Tempest? What was that? His high it was Bob, wasn't oh, it Bob, B-O-B? Yeah. Uh, what about B-O-B-1? Or, or B-O-B-B, try B-O-B-B and B-O-B-1. No, neither of those. Um, Polybius? Polybius. Is there like... How can we do that in... License plate style? P-L-B-S? P-L-B-S, try P-L-B-S. Oh, 1981. Oh shit, that's good. That's good, that's good. And we're in. 1981 the year of Polybius's first appearance, and Bobby's alleged abduction. Look at this. Pictures of Mark's journal in the camera roll. And something else. There's a video. He just took this. This is where it pays off. I gotta admit, these coordinates. The video was of a hiking trail in the Tillamook State Forest. Bobby's not visible as his camera phone bobs along through the trees, his commentary incessant. Would this serve as yet another twist in our investigation of the Polybius legend? Or did the video promise to finally lay all our questions to rest? I'm John Frechette. This is The Polybius Conspiracy, a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. We had a lot of questions about what we saw in that video. Strange revelations we couldn't quite understand. Ruben seemed so bothered by it all, he asked us to leave. On the way back to our Airbnb, it began to rain. We packed up the sound equipment to be safe, thinking our day of production was over. As we returned to the house, Todd struggled to get the key into the lock. The patio light had gone out at some point, so he asked me to shine some light his way. In the glow of my cell phone, he finally got the door open. Inside, it was pitch black. We tried flipping on the nearest light switch, but it didn't work, leaving us to stumble around the house in darkness. 
Every switch we flipped yielded the same result. Every room we entered, dark. We would have thought the power had gone out, save for the fact that the neighboring houses all had their lights on. Something was wrong. As we stepped into the kitchen, it was Todd who first took notice that every light bulb in the house had been removed from its fixture and lined up in a row on the kitchen island. Someone had been here while we were in the Tillamook State Forest, and they had left us a warning. Okay, so what, what, exa what exactly happened at the property? Did somebody broke in? So they took all the light fixtures and then they just put it on the, the like the kitchen island for us. Um, did they did they steal anything? Todd called our host to explain the situation. With nothing missing, hard drives, cash, and other belongings, just as we'd left them, we hoped that there was a rational explanation for what happened. But I, I haven't been there. I only come over on Saturdays. I do the recycling and all that stuff. But no, I haven't, haven't been over there. So I don't know how anyone got into the property. That's a bit concerning to me. And it was certainly concerning to us, especially given what just went down in the forest. Had Reuben, Todd, and myself been pawns in an epic hoax? Or did everything, the journal, the woods, the light bulbs, point to something far more sinister? It was hard not to make connections. Well, I'm just not important. My story is important. It was the voice on journalist Naomi Halbrook's cassette that first spoke of mysterious intruders, alleging that when he quit his job building a covert arcade game, Someone entered his apartment when he wasn't home, opening windows and surveilling him from nearby. Once I see the man with the bad hand standing under my window. The man with three fingers. Halbrook had a similar experience 30 years ago when she looked into the origin of that cassette tape. Things were being moved in my house. Someone had been in my house. And just like our own experience, there was no forced entry. There was nothing broken. The doors were locked. She suspected that her investigation into the tape and the intrusions were related, that the same person was behind both. Before going to work, Naomi left a copy of the tape on her coffee table. That night, she returned home. And the tape was gone. Like Naomi, instead of us tracking down clues, had someone been tracking us? The parallels to the cassette tape and to her story were impossible to ignore. But if it was all a hoax perpetrated by Bobby, then that suggested he was the mystery intruder, sending us out into the woods like a couple of avatars playing a game of his own creation, a failed stunt to validate his tale. And it made sense, because who else would be the culprit if not him? The problem was, we had proof that almost certainly absolved him. Here, there's a video. This is where it pays off. And it was in the video we found on Bobby's phone. I have crisscrossed every part of this area out here. Oh, see, you hear that? Audio taken from Bobby's raw video file. That is the sound of the stream. Is the sound of the stream that I've told everybody and everyone says I'm crazy and there's no stream there. Yeah, this is it. This is it. Bobby's experience as a tour guide came across in the video as he made his way through the very hiking trails we had traversed only hours earlier. He would speak to the camera as though it were a companion, citing unnecessary facts 
and celebrating the ways in which people would treat him differently once he had proven the existence of the tunnel. His intended audience, however, remained somewhat more ambiguous. Occasionally, he would speak as though he expected the world to be watching. He's pretty elated when he gets to the creek. Or rather, a creek. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Holy shit. Even more difficult was determining his level of sanity. Had he really expected to find something out there? Or was this all some sort of performance? An attempt to convince a new audience about the existence of something everyone else had long since given up on finding. Yeah, it should be right around this bend, behind these bushes here. That's not it. It must be over this way. Bobby really sells it that he's looking for this tunnel, doubting himself. I was pretty sure I looked over my right shoulder at it, but it actually could have been my left because I did spin around. And our initial read, that this was a performance piece designed to fool an unsuspecting audience, started to dissipate the more Bobby moved in circles, whatever plan he may have had unraveling right there on camera. It didn't make sense. Okay, these size ow, boulders. This is familiar. See, right now I can see the stream, and I can actually see the rock. And standing here, it is over my right shoulder, like I remembered. Um, so this is where I ran past. I don't fucking get it, man. Just fucking be right here. God damn it. It goes from bad to worse pretty quickly from here, as reality sets in for Bobby. Damn it! Fuck! The camera phone falls to his side, the lens tilting toward the trees. He just sits there in failure. And then, sometime later, That was the end of Bobby's video. And just before, those were our voices in the distance. Had Bobby followed us to Tillamook, shadowing us to ensure that we found his phone? Either Bobby got the coordinates, he happened to get out there before we did, he heard us coming, didn't want to run into us, and- Or didn't, or didn't want us to find him and realize that like, None of none of the none of what he'd said about the tunnel or the coordinates or anything was true. Sure, in a panic, he runs, he hides behind a tree, he drops his phone inadvertently, right? Or he places it there to be discovered, right? Right, uh, uh, complete with an easy to guess password, right. just to make certain that we can get in there and, and listen to his little play acting. His performance piece. Although <sighs> he seems very sincere at the end of that video. Oh, Bobby can do sincere. He's been at this for how many years? But why would he have wanted us to discover a video that essentially disproved the existence of the tunnel? That said, if Bobby was at Tillamook the same time that we were, then it was likely that someone else was back at our home removing the light bulbs. There is a chance he could have raced back to Portland to beat us, but even for Bobby, 
That angle seems way too risky. Too much of a chance we might have caught him in the act. And so going with the idea that another person or persons could have had a large enough window of time to get in and remove the light bulbs before we got back still begs the question, to what end? We weren't so interested in speculating anymore. Instead, we were ready to find out who did it and why. The video wasn't the only clue Bobby had left behind for us on his cell. There were also phone numbers in his call history, ours and others. We began calling each one, many of them disconnected or seemingly wrong numbers, in the hope that one might help us locate Bobby, or at very least, answer the question of what happened to him. You've gone through a lot as a kid. I understand and I have empathy, but you just, you can't manipulate other people's lives for your narrative, for your story. I know it makes you feel better, but it's hurting other people. That's all I got to say to Bobby. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Sims, Ruben's missing partner. Uh, as an addict, you, you make excuses. And I was justifying everything that I was doing just like I did in, in my early 30s. So I was living with my sister part-time. I was on the street part-time. Um, and eventually the only person that I had to talk to really was Bobby. After explaining the incredible circumstances under which we'd located him, Mark was willing to tell his story on record, verifying many of our suspicions, but also prompting new revelations. To begin with, Mark clarified that he had never heard of Polybius and confirmed that Bobby was his dealer. Well, yeah, but that when you're on the streets, you learn how to control people and manipulate right. people and, you, and, and, and use them and their vices against themselves. Mm. And yeah, that's, you know, Bobby was doing that to me the whole time I was back in Portland. As Ruben suspected, it was his infidelity that had triggered Mark's decision to end the relationship and return to his hometown, not the hunt for a mythic game. Mark explained his choice to leave Reuben in the manner he did. And it was, it was probably about six months before I actually made the decision to leave. But I didn't want to be out of town knowing that he was with somebody else. And then if that was going to be on my mind, then I couldn't, I couldn't give my full attention to the people that were coming in to get healed. Mark is referring to his career as a consultant to a number of drug and alcohol rehabilitation facilities nationwide. And I just knew that if he and I kept having conversations and would talk about, okay, we're gonna break up and let's split this up, being two addictive people, we would never let that happen. I started setting things up and I got the money out of the bank. I canceled my phone so nobody could get a hold of me. And that, that's how I broke it off and, and left. My heart was hurt and I needed to go back to something that was familiar. And I knew Portland in and out. But the city that Mark had once called home was not the only familiar thing he returned to as he grappled 
with the loss of his relationship. Either you're strong or you're not, and you go back to certain vices. There was a, uh, a, a girl that I ran into, and she referred me over to Bobby, and he, he definitely got me what I needed. Bobby says he knew you back when you guys were teenagers. I mean, he's convinced that, like, you helped him escape from this tunnel out in the woods. Did you guys have any kind of relationship? <laughs> you know, back, back in the 80s, I, I don't remember knowing Bobby, but I do remember the stories. But we never hung out. I, I don't. I don't know. You know, I, I don't remember the guy. Did you make the connection that that kid that you heard about in the stories was the same guy that you were dealing with when you went back to Portland? No, I just I didn't know that was the same guy. No. And some of the stories Mark heard as a teenager were different than the ones Bobby had shared with us. As, as I got into my teenage years. You know, I was about 14 years old. I I had to hit the streets and make a little bit of money. You know, you, you meet a guy in the arcade or, or down at the uh, restaurant, take him out back, and you make five or ten bucks, you know, and if I was lucky, it was 15. Out of all of the pickup spots, Mark found himself gravitating toward an out-of-the-way arcade with a reputation as a haven for teenage prostitution, Coin Kingdom. And there was a certain group that hung out there these older gentlemen, these older men would come in. Um, and at the end of the night, I was lucky enough to be able to pick up the slack and, and make a buck. While we'd heard plenty of stories about the seedy side of the arcade scene, Bobby had never mentioned being exposed to any of this as a teenager when he spoke of Coin Kingdom. We asked Mark what he remembered about the arcade's owner, Willie King. I heard a lot of talk that Willie King was supposedly hitting on kids, uh, taking kids in a back alley, or kids were disappearing, and some people would blame it on Willie King. He knew my situation and who I was, so he had an opportunity to uh, approach me, and he never did. Um, I didn't know any other kids that were approached by him, so, you know, there, there are stories, but I wasn't a part of any of them which, while not absolving Willie from the allegations, certainly cast the same doubts as Bobby's claims. But that's not to say the rumors about what went on at Coin Kingdom were baseless. Well, I don't if, if you heard of a guy named The Doctor. No, the, I haven't. Who's The Doctor? The Doctor was a guy that came in and he would work on the machines. I, I, no, nobody knew what his real name was. He was just so good at fixing the machines, he was always the doctor. And when he would fix it and close it up, he would always ring up a couple free games on there, and the kids would be able to go and, and play free games. But the doctor was also a bit scary. He had this, this, this hand, like this gnarled, mangled hand. He was missing a finger or two, and he would hold it up to the kids and say, don't be digging for quarters, or your, your hand will look like this. There was a night that there was, uh, nobody was in there. I was alone. I was hanging out, trying to get one last trip for the night. He was finishing up a machine. 
and he got me in the back corner and uh, his whole tone changed um, and it's it was about the only time that I was really nervous being in the presence of somebody. Luckily, some guy walked in and started playing one of the video games. It startled him and I got out of there. If, if he did it to other kids, I'm not sure. Did Willie know he was doing this sort of? Was he aware? I really don't know if Willie knew or not. There was a huge thing that went down. The cops were in there and the parents were talking and all. And when they shut that place down, Willie really took all the blame. And I don't know if, if the doctor was a part of that, but you know, the, the place closed down and that's really the last time I saw the doctor. And then a year or two after I, I ended up leaving Portland. If we're to believe Mark's story, and really there's no reason not to, then nearly all the elements of not only Bobby's alleged abduction, but also the prank cassette tape journalist Naomi Halbrook received in the mail can be explained. The three-fingered man, someone who makes an appearance in both stories, at least implicitly. The doctor, a nickname given to the researcher heading up the development of a new arcade game and cabinet in the story recounted on the prank cassette. And most of all, Mark's memory suggests a horrifying answer to the question of what happened to Bobby as a teenager. Of course, we can't definitively know these things in Bobby's absence. Had he been the creator of the cassette tape, at least in part? And to what end? Was it a plea for attention? Look closer than what is in front of you. Look for what is in the game, in the machine. You would... Or was it a coded cry for help? What if there was some evidence to be found in the machine, as the voice on the tape suggests? Service tags, perhaps. Something providing a link to the doctor. Maybe something more conclusive. Was there an answer to all of this, lost somewhere in the past? An unmarked black cabinet that held a secret inside? Some proof of a very real crime that took place in the glow of a game screen? We had to wonder if Bobby even knew the truth himself anymore, or if tales of a phantom arcade game and a tunnel in the woods had become his truth. All we had was Mark's account to fill us in on what happened next and provide a possible explanation for how this whole endeavor got started. The turning point in all of this came when Mark went into debt to Bobby. And then one thing led to another, and I'm starting to get in a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. And, and eventually, I ended up selling my car to Bobby. There wasn't a whole lot of money transaction there. Mark admits he still had some of his belongings in the Prius when he turned over the keys to Bobby, just some old junk in boxes he'd collected from his sister's house. And all of it fell into Bobby's hands, suggesting it was Bobby, not Mark's sister, who initially reached out to Reuben. He knew everything. He, you, you told him your whole story. He had all of your personal belongings. Everything was set up for him to reach out to Reuben if he wanted to. That's incredibly manipulative of Bobby. Yeah. But it sounds like Bobby. 
Mark's journal, his car, the house in Gresham, all orchestrated by Bobby, seemingly in a bid to validate his story. Mark claims he was privy to none of it, and after using his car as collateral to get out of debt, Mark moved on with his life. I went back into the program, and I've got a new boyfriend. We're living together, um, super happy. And uh, my relationship with my sister, I've, I've worked that out again. I, I, I feel rage. I, I, I feel tremendous shame, guilt. This is Ruben speaking by phone after seeing Mark again for the first time since his disappearance. Mark turned up as, as though he was just coming back from a business trip, you know, just coming back to collect his things. And I, I didn't, I, I, I barely recognized him. Uh, Tina's nasty. Man. I think he said it, speed it, it is nasty. It, it works fast. So, so uh, he's, you're, you're pretty convinced that he's using again? Oh, he, I, uh, there is no question. When we spoke to him on the phone, I mean, he just seemed like so collected and, and calm and rational. I, I, don't, I don't know what, what he said to you guys. When he came by to get his stuff, he was fucking strung out. He, he, he didn't calm or rational about it. Was it possible that Ruben had been blinded by his emotions? Was he unwilling to recognize Mark as being happy and healthy, independent of him? At Ruben's urging, we sent him the audio file of our call with Mark so he could reconcile this disconnect for himself. I'm on the road. If I get in a, get in a plane and I'm gone for three days or five days or seven days, this is it? This is, this is supposed to be Mark? What do you mean by that? Somebody, this person told you he was Mark? What, what are you guys trying to do to me? Did you, did you, did you, you no, were you, no, you no, 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 by phone? All, all over the phone. We just called the number that was in Bobby's phone. Well, if you're not running some kind of a game on me, then somebody's running one on you because that is not Mark Sims. So the voice is totally wrong. I think I lived with the guy long enough to tell you if it was his voice. We're, I, I just want to make it very clear that this has nothing to do with us. Yeah. Because you guys would never do that, right? We have nothing to do Don't with that. Don't call me again. Root. Jesus. That was the last time Reuben would speak to us. Whatever he had once believed about Mark, that he disappeared in search of a Polybius cabinet, that he'd relapsed, none of that seemed to matter now. Only that somehow, co-producer Todd Luoto and I had manipulated him. Which was exactly how we were feeling after learning that Mark may not have been who he said he was. We tried reaching out to him, or rather, to the person masquerading as Mark, but his number had been disconnected. When we'd spoken, he'd remarked that his phone was a burner he'd picked up while in Portland, and that we were lucky he hadn't gotten rid of it yet. So there's that possibility. And then there was Frank, the shady video game dealer whose number we found in Mark's journal. He wasn't returning our calls either. There's also the possibility that none of this, not Mark's story, not the allegations of drug dealing against Bobby, is real. That all of it is some kind of disinformation campaign waged against Bobby in an attempt to discredit him once and for all. But of course, to believe that, you'd have to believe that Bobby's story was a threat to some nefarious shadow organization, if you want to indulge in conspiracy theories. But it's impossible to know. 
because the person around which all of these questions orbit has become as much a phantom as the game he devoted his life to conjuring. The website for his walking tour taken down. Posts that once littered online forums deleted. Phone numbers and email addresses discontinued. Was Bobby making himself disappear? Or was someone doing it for him? In the absence of any physical evidence, all that remained was the story of a game that may never have existed and the legend of the boy who claimed it did. I've played games where things speed up and you gotta go faster, but the way this was an assault was uh, very different and uh, my eyes really started to hurt. It just felt like things were popping loose in my head or coming alive or it's just like popcorn slowly going off in my head. It was straining my circuit boards. And then at that time is when uh, the screen just went totally black, except for me in the center. And I started getting defeated. I started getting attacked. And you just had to shoot these things, but you couldn't see them. It occurred to us that if Bobby's story was true, at least that part of it, then Polybius joins a select group of video games that were unbeatable. Its final level, a black screen, in which the player's avatar is besieged by invisible enemies, locked in a losing battle to stay alive. And with that knowledge, we had to wonder if perhaps the intruder who visited our Portland Airbnb while we were trekking through the Tillamook State Forest had the same message for us, that removing the light bulbs from each socket wasn't just meant to terrify, but also to inform. We had reached the final level. And much like young Bobby learned in 1981, the game's most crucial challenge wasn't controlling a starship or clearing boards, but mastering how to navigate a new world while engulfed in darkness, somehow preserving one's agency in the face of overwhelming uncertainty, where all that remains are your convictions. There's a moment toward the end of Bobby's video, after he's given up trying to find the tunnel, where his hand, the one holding the phone, sort of goes limp, and he just sits there in the brush for several minutes. You don't see his face, just a canted angle of the surrounding forest. You're wondering, what's going through his head? Disappointment? Frustration? Despair? And then he whispers something, so softly, you can barely make it out at first. Conspiracy is a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. The series is produced by Todd Luoto and myself, and executive produced by the one and only Julie Shapiro. Original artwork for each episode is by Jin Lim. We are eternally grateful to Restricted, Rishikesh Hirway, Ananon, and Chris Fitzpatrick for allowing us to feature their music. You can learn more about all of them and see bios for everyone we interviewed by visiting radiotopia.fm slash showcase. If you'd like to support our show, 
You can find us on the web at thepolybiusconspiracy.com. I'm John Frechette. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, <laughs>